Broadcasting remotely this week from KWT Global's Charterhouse Square offices here in London, England, welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies. My guest today is Pippa Murray, otherwise known as Pip Murray, founder of Pippa Nut, an addictive natural nut butter brand on a mission to disrupt the perception that healthy food has to be boring. Based in London, Pippa started selling her nut butter at London's Maltby Street Market every weekend way back in 2013, then went through a startup acceleration program, quit her day job to launch Pippa Nut, and was able to scale the brand through crowdfunding. Fast forward to today, and the brand is gaining monumental growth, disrupting the market in a stock in more than 5,000 stores across the UK and Europe. The company recently launched nut butter cups with single-sourced Colombian chocolate that I'm dying to get my hands on. Now, Pip said after our holiday party this week, she promises to deliver. What's interesting is that since inception, Pip has been able to create a culture and a brand that is passionate about looking after its people and the planet while scaling from the kitchen to being stocked across supermarket shelves across the UK. Now, in 2019, Pip has led the brand on a journey to becoming a B Corp, and they now have that certification. Over the past year, the London-based nut butter brand has increased the amount of recycled plastic in its packaging, reduced its transport miles, and even surveyed its suppliers' waste management policies to achieve that B Corp certification. The brand is actually certified across four areas, people, the community, the environment, and governance. Pitt Murray, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I didn't butcher that too much, right? No, perfect. perfect. Excellent. Thank you. So very, very quick look back at your incredibly short career because you're very young. <laughs> you actually have a kind of a theater and a creative and an arts background. Yeah, so I studied anthropology at university and then thought I'd leapfrog into sort of the creative arts and the museum sort of sector within London. So my tangent into food and drink and then also into business has been somewhat of a kind of curveball, I think, both to even to myself, but certainly to my friends and family as well. So yeah, for me, I very much was led to kind of start my own business from the fact that I'm from a consumer lens I think myself I'm an absolute nut butter addict I still eat our products every single day I was very much inspired by the fact when I was shopping the fixture six seven years ago before I launched the brand nearly every single product that I was picking up in supermarkets contained palm oil they were all so processed and at the time I was doing loads of running and it was something that I was eating quite a lot of and it just started to bother me that there were products on the shelf that I felt didn't really resonate with me as a shopper. So it really came from that point of view, so a real love of the product, but also a dissatisfaction with what was available. And you mentioned in your intro, you know, I do think there is this perception that, you know, when you pick up something healthier, and even today I think this is true, that in some way you're making some sort of sacrifice. And for me... And And usually it's taste. Or you're getting bullied by a coworker for eating a quinoa salad and hummus and not a cheeseburger. Yeah, and you're sitting there feeling a bit like hard done by as well. That's that's the thing. I think taste has to win out if you're going to get people to eat better foods, better options. And I think the beauty of nut butter and peanut butter is that it is so addictive. I Mm -hmm. agree with you. Like, I eat it by the spoonful from the jar. Same. And... It still has the backdrop of being good for you. It's rich in protein, filled with good fats. Yeah, it's really nourishing, and I love that balance. Do you have a sweet tooth? 
And it was actually my dad who gave me my first sort of loan for the business. It was um, five grand, which was what got me off the ground. And about a couple of years later, once I paid him back, he actively told me he'd never expect to see that money again. I've <laughs> so, heard that before from other guests. Yeah, I think that... Same thing. And I think it's brilliant, because in some ways I think that they were super supportive, never blinked an eyelid in terms right. of always encouraging. But, you know, them. secretly they're like, oh, Pitt's just going through a phase. Exactly. She'll be okay. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. It'll pass. Give It'll it pass, yeah. It'll fail soon, yeah. Yeah. Right. quickly. Right. But no, and then I think they've been just as surprised to some extent as I have. So how did you get off the street? And I don't mean that in a negative <laughs> way, but <laughs> you obviously don't want to be at these fairs every weekend. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think my ambition for the brand was always to have a national supermarket brand. I think from day one so that was really just a testing thing and I think one of the reasons for that is because I think to really have impact if you really want to deliver on I say what I was saying earlier around really changing perceptions changing mm-hmm. people's habits around food then I, I think you have to scale in order to do that and I think that's that's why sort of having that vision of where you want to go and therefore what impact you're looking to have is quite key at the start because it, it drives the kind of product and also the ambitions of the brand but yeah, the how to get it from a smuggler store is probably the one question that I get asked the most from any other small business owner is it's that taking it from your kitchen to a factory is really difficult. And I think the biggest and hardest kind of barriers to entry are getting convincing factories that they should give you a go. And mm-hmm. I think the the normal kind of response when fact when you reach out to factories is what's your volume? Right. They want they need and volume. That's all they want. And right. when you say it's tiny, they almost put down the phone in that moment so you really have to sell the dream and that's where again coming back to having a clear vision of where you want to take it and Mm -hmm. really dangling that carrot of what three to five years could look like if they get on board now and also just being kind of interesting to work with I think that environment is very traditional and slightly stagnant so if you can somehow inspire so yeah it's finding the factory is the the actual clincher but more importantly I think from a brand perspective finding people that really align with you because they're taking your recipes they're translating them to the factory floor you've really got to trust that they're doing right by you and the integrity of the product in the integrity of the product if you're putting your name behind it um has to be as good as it was in your kitchen if not better which factory did you go the warrior factories yeah so we've had we've had a few factories now but our first factory is based in holland and now Mm. we have two factories one in the uk and one in holland so you know where I'm going to go with that, right? How will Brexit impact oh, the Holland? Don't say the Brexit word. It's actually not too bad for us. I mean, at the moment, we're slightly in limbo land where we wait to see whether or not yeah. tariffs will get put in place. At the moment, there are none, and there for the next year won't be. But certainly, if that does happen, then it will get more expensive to move things into the UK. Right. Um, so and why do you have two factories in two different countries? Well, I guess it's about finding just the experts in the products that we make. So our almond butters are made in the UK by a factory that only handles almonds and tree nuts. Uh, and our peanuts are made, peanut butters are made in a peanut butter factory. And it's... I didn't realize factories are specific to the nut. No, they aren't, they aren't normally, but allergens, and this gets yes. potentially a little bit boring, but no. you know, when it comes to allergens, you have to be super careful for right. obvious reasons. You don't so, want to cross-contaminate. And you don't want to cross-contaminate, so we separate them out. And it helps because we're buying huge volumes of these commodities, so if you've got experts helping you buy well as mm-hmm. well and make sure that they know their supply chain. And you so if I have a peanut them. butter allergy but not an almond allergy, yeah. I will know so. for sure that this is in a plant that only deals with almonds. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, I think it's about 
to my point earlier, finding the right partners and right experts. So yeah, that's been a big challenge for us. So just a quick side pivot. Let's talk about the fail. Yes. Fails are important because you learn a lot. Um, 100%. So you tried to go into almond milk. Yeah. What happened? Yeah, and it was quite a painful process. But looking back on it, it's actually... It's got to be very tiring to squeeze those almonds. Oh, yeah. You must cramp up from that. (laughs) Yeah, milking almonds. Exactly. Oh, God. How many times I got asked about that. Uh um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we launched them in our third year. So we've been going about five years business. We launched the products in our third year and have been developing them for two years. And I think whilst the products were great, they just didn't take off uh, and they never really fully resonated with our audience in the way that we see through our nut butters. And I think a few learnings came off the back of it were firstly, make sure that you really understand what consumers think about your brand and what they want from you. And you said it right at the start that peanut butter and almonds are quite indulgent, quite addictive, and they're really flavorful um, and they really feel like a treat. And you can, they're very mobile, like you can transport them very easily. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So let's just talk a little bit about your one and only fail so far, which is going (laughs) into the almond milk market or trying to go into almond milk market. Yeah. What happened there? Yeah, I mean, innovation is always known to be difficult to land well, but our almond milk range, which we launched about three years into the business, yeah, it didn't work. It didn't sell as much as we needed to to keep it on shelf and keep investing in it. And we pulled it about a year ago now. I think for me, it was a frustrating, but also incredibly useful learning to have. We learned that you need to understand what your consumers want from you and what they perceive your brand to be about. So obviously we're a nut butter brand originally and people love our products because they are so delicious. They're really rich in flavour, rich in nutrients. And if you compare that to our almond milk, which is incredibly functional and actually the components of which are predominantly water, it just always felt lacklustre and sort of under-delivered and people didn't, it just didn't resonate with our shoppers. What they want is a little bit of indulgence and taste. So that's kind of, for me, that's one element, but obviously the market got so saturated and I'm yeah. sure it's sim- it's really similar to the US. Oh, I can't And that we have, I mean, actually my go-to, I don't mind almond milk or yeah. soy milk. I love oat milk. Yes. Yeah. Is that a thing here? Yeah, it's huge here. We have uh, oatly and they are smashing it. Yeah. And, um, and they were like the only game in town yeah. for the longest time in the US and now they have things like planted oats and they've got some competitors. I think they're from Sweden. Originally. Yeah, they're from Sweden. Yeah. And I was saying, I think it's just, it was a competitive category which needed a lot of money to get it off the ground. And a lot of marketing. And a lot of marketing. Right. And I think for me, it was a lesson in learning, A, keep focused on your core because actually you need to grow that. Um, but just be aware when you're entering new categories, you need to have a really strong USP mm-hmm. um, if you're going to get traction. And if you don't have a strong enough USP, then you need a lot of money. And so that's where you start to decide, well, is this right? Because we're going to have to throw but cash at it. Just to give you a little bit of credit, because I feel like you're beating up on yourself a little <laughs> bit too much. But you also pulled out of it fast enough. A lot of companies don't make that decision. They, yeah. They're like, no, i got to stick with it. I'm, this is testing my metal. And then they go out of business because basically go bankrupt or they run out of funds. Or they have to raise more money. And it sounds like you gave it the appropriate amount of time. You analyzed what the potential upside is. The mm-hmm. downside outweighed the upside. And you got out. You exited. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, I think it, to your point, it's definitely better to do it quicker than, than just sit on it. Because mm-hmm. it's incredibly distracting for your business. So. Right. Your sales team are thinking about 
that range as well as our existing range and you know everything if it's not working and you know it you know it when a product's going when it's flying and when it's not and for us it was like a tough call but we made the decision about a year ago yeah and it was a good one and i'm like pleased to have done it so let me give you an alternative and maybe you do this okay. um, or others but i actually put all sorts of alternative butters in my coffee so i start in the morning with a double espresso nice and oat milk and maple syrup nice it's delicious that sounds great when i'm like in peak training mode yeah now i'm trying to be two-thirds plant-based so i can't know if i can do some more i actually buy something called maple butter and i stir that into my coffee i actually have the i put that in the bottom of the mug and then the espresso pours on top of it mm. and i've done that with almond butter too is it a bit like a bulletproof coffee a little bit yeah but I mean, I'll like do like a teaspoon of almond butter and just let the espresso melt it. And then I'll put some oat milk on top and just stir it up or shake it up. Yeah. It's delicious. That sounds great. So I get extra protein. Yeah. I get that sweet indulgence because like you have a massive sweet tooth. Yeah. And I pretty much work out every day. Like, mm. you know, I'm training for London Marathon. Oh, yeah. I do, I've never done London. So oh, that's I'm running with children with cancer. That'll be really cool. Yeah. And that's how I start my day. Almost every day. It's a two or three espresso. But I rarely do it just full black. I usually have yeah. some sort of indulgence in there. You are basically our perfect target market. I am. I'm telling you. <laughs> years ago, I was training my for my first... This is 2012. My first Ironman. And I thought it'd be my only one. I was running through town. It was like five in the morning in the middle of the summer. And I saw the animal control officer. I don't know if you, you probably have them here in the suburbs, right? You know what it is, though. Yeah, right? It's a police yeah. officer dedicated towards, it could be a dog or a cat, or it could be, in this case, a bear. Oh, God. And I live about 40 miles outside of Manhattan. And his name is Angel. I'm like, hey, Angel, what's up? He's like, nothing. I'm like, what are you doing? And that, this is like one of those mega long 16, 17 yes, mile runs yeah, before yeah. work. Yeah. Wow. And, okay. and he's like, he's like, nothing. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. Turns out, I don't know, an hour later, they caught a 300 pound male bear. Oh my God. Literally like where I was running. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm like, I run with fucking peanut butter. Like yeah, that was like, like, tempting, <laughs> yeah. like a running treat, you know? Yeah. So as a, a very mediocre endurance athlete, I rely heavily on all sorts of nut butters and yeah. have them make a little squeezy. Do you yeah, make a squeezy yeah, pouch? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll so. we'll send you some. So I need to smuggle them back. Yeah. I can take them over you the border. You can take them in 30 grams. It's all good. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I love that because you can put it in your pocket. You can yeah. even have it in your hand. And that yeah. versus, do you have goo over here? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. garbage. Yeah, it's yeah, talk yeah. about processed disgustingness. Yeah. Clearly, yeah. they'll never be on the podcast. Yeah. So why would I go with a goo when I can just go with something all natural? I and it's going to digest agree. faster. Too. Yeah, yeah. And it actually tastes nice. Right. Yeah, right. completely agree. So you're a runner? Yeah. So I've done... I did um, Amsterdam Marathon about a month ago. That's not a world major, is it? No, no. it's not. It's quite small, actually. But I've done London two times now. Nice. It's still the best marathon I've ever done. But you're going to do it again? We can do it I together. I would love to. I would yeah. absolutely love to. Yeah, I kind of ebb and flow at the moment. I think it depends on yeah. how demanding the business is, but I do. Right. It's the one thing I'm sure you find it is gives me that headspace and for it's, sure, it's almost meditative. I find. Oh, it totally is. Um, Anything that's rhythmic, yeah. by definition, is meditative. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I too also find like city running. I love it. Mm -hmm. I find it's like a playground, and you can just decide where you want to go and just head. And particularly if you're doing those long runs, oh yeah, you can really get over some terrain. It's great. I agree. We had a very early start this morning, and I'm very jet lagged. Mm -hmm. So the last thing I really wanted to do is wake up and run, mm -hmm. especially on a treadmill because it's so dark this yeah. time of year. Yeah. So I had all of my morning meetings, and during lunch I went back and I ran along the Thames. Oh, just got six cool. miles in, and I just feel it's just like a reset button. A hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So how many SKUs do you have now? So we have 25 SKUs now. Really? Yeah, surprising wow. amounts. Um, Does that include the, the chocolate peanut butter cups that you're... Yeah, that's the peanut butter cups, and we've got mm. four different sizes, different flavors. We've got like eight different flavors, and then they come in different sizes as well. So, right. yeah, we launched the brand with just three. So, yeah, it's really... And exciting. you're five years old. And five years old. That's incredible. Yeah. And how many employees? There's 25 of us now. Not including all the manufacturing people. Yeah, so that's just our head office. The head yeah. office, right. Yeah. Yeah. So five years from now, where do you want to be? I mean... I know you, and just talking to you for 25, 30 minutes, <laughs> you're already thinking where do you want to be in five years, I can tell. Oh, definitely. And I think naturally, you can't help but not. And you'll be like 18 years old. <laughs> so it'll be it. great. Not Pip is 13. She's actually going back to age. Definitely yeah. not true. Greta got nothing on you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, it's about expanding across Europe. But at the moment, our sites are... In the next one, sort of next couple of years, it's very much owning the UK, expanding our product range. I want to see Pippin up into lots of different categories and particularly within the snacking, there's a lot that we can do in that space. So that's a bit of focus on the sort of shorter term, but then more broadly, Europe is a big opportunity for us. It's right on our doorstep. Right. That's the kind of next hurdle in the next sort of three to five years. And it's a massive marketplace. Yeah, it's a big one. Yeah. So I know off air we talked, I had Mark Cuttigan on mm. from Ella's Kitchen, yeah. and he's also a trustee for B Labs, yeah. B Corp here, in addition to head of being head of sustainability for Haynes Lodge. Yeah, he's a busy guy. Very busy guy. We had a great discussion. And it's amazing to me that you went for your B Corp certification so early on. In mm. some ways, probably very smart. Mm. Because before you got into bad habits or things that you'd have to change later you, it, that could cost money, you actually are, from the start, already B Corp certified and accredited. Yeah. yeah. I think all small businesses should try and do it as early as they possibly can because as soon as you become more of a complicated company or you have like different investors that have different well hopefully not but they might have different agendas it may be more challenging to do so yeah we certified about two months ago now so four and a half years in but it took us about a year to do so that's it yeah I mean it, it was six takes a lot of companies like three years to do yeah right. and I think it, like I said it helps that we were sort of smaller and it means that you just can crack through it but I mean, what I love about it is, and this sounds really kind of not the most glamorous side of it, but it starts you tracking things. And if you start tracking, like say your, like you mentioned, mileage or the amount of waste material or your recyclability of your products, if you start doing it, then it starts to give you a benchmark that you can then start to improve upon. And I think when you're a startup, you can ta- you can sometimes try and cut corners by maybe not being quite as rigorous around, particularly really looking into your supply chain. Right, and you're looking to spend the least amount of money to get yeah. to the market You'll fastest and sell as much as you can yeah. because survival is your number one goal. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Which is ironic because I think if you don't look at this stuff now and if you don't embed it... You have no long-term survival. Because <laughs> right. we're, like, we're that millennial audience, Gen Zs, they're the sort of people that buy our products and they are the most... And Gen X guys like me and who Gen pretend X, like we're millennials. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's really demanding. And I think that they're getting more and more demanding as particularly the environment becoming um, more pressing and more urgency behind the climate crisis that is imminent, if not on us. So I just think as a brand owner, there's a responsibility, let alone whether or not you're doing it to help improve your brand. I think businesses do have impact on the right. planet. So let's try and minimise it. So yeah, I mean, it's, I think, an incredible community to be part of. And in the UK, it's still not broadly known from a consumer perspective, but from a 
industry wide it's becoming way more um, relevant and um, known and I think for us actually as a business it's been hugely beneficial to recruit the right people a lot of people have actually inquired and also got jobs within the business and wanted to apply to Pivnot because we have a set of values that aligns to them but also we're a B Corp and it's hugely appealing so I think it it does benefit this business but it's not really the main driver the main driver is to have a great product and and do good and have a great product yeah we've worked with tons of B Corps and mission driven brands and had Ben and Jerry's on not long ago too and they're like the OG of mission driven companies very you should listen to it yeah and everybody always says though yes we always want to do well by doing good and want to be mission driven Mm -hmm. but you still have to have a really good product. If you have a shit product, it doesn't matter yeah. that you're a B Corp or that you're... You have to have a good product and that mission together articulated in the right way, and that's where the magic happens. Yeah, and that's, that's what I quite love about consumer goods or food products, is that you really live and die by the consumer. They can try it once and never buy it again, and that's right. it, you're done. And so you have to really... Well, you clearly are a little bit of a masochist and you like a good challenge then. Oh, uh, I do. I it's mean, a I, tough the business. The marathon runner in me, I think, is... Yeah, maybe you want to open up a restaurant next? Yeah. Because <laughs> that's a great even idea. <laughs> yeah. Even harder. I don't know. They're both really Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I don't know. I think it's yeah, and that's I often say when you're asked looking for a product, like don't rush it. It can be really like the, the tendency is to try and get something to market as quickly as possible. When it comes to I think food products or any product, like actually do take time to make sure that it's genuinely better than competitors, right. and you feel proud to stand by it because it, it's really really easy to just think that you can get away with maybe having a slightly substandard product. So you right. just you just can't. Not as a premium brand, so not as a brand that's particularly appealing to the audience that I do as well. So, yeah, I think you're so right. It's got to align. Right, right. Yeah. And tell me, how does crowdfunding work? Yeah. Everybody likes to talk about it, but nobody really explains it. I know you're going out to the masses, but do you pay them back? Are they investors that they get a dividend? How does that work? Yeah, so we use a platform called Crowdcube, which I'm not sure is in the US yet, but Crowdcube is an equity crowdfunding site. So the investors that put money into your business get equity in return. So in in turn, you hope that as the business grows, eventually you'll exit and they'll get there. And they get diluted as the business grows. Yeah, so as the business grows, and if you do take on more investment, they will get diluted. But if you don't, then they'll keep their their relationship. So how much of your business is owned by crowdfunded sources, percentage-wise? So about 20%, or probably just under 20% now, are owned by Crowdcube. And do you hear from these people? No, I mean, they're really, really passive. A, f- a handful of them I speak to quite regularly and I'll be quite, uh, I'll lean on them for advice and things like that. But right. actually, it's one of the things which perhaps maybe isn't such a good thing to say, but one of the reasons why I liked it so much is that you have this kind of pool of quite silent investors. And particularly in this, I did the fundraise about six months before I launched the business. So it was a pre-revenue round. And I think in that first couple of years, all you need to do is get out there and do it your way and sell as hard as you possibly can. What you don't want is to have boards of directors and having to make board packs every month to then, like, basically, you don't want all that happening. You need to focus on surviving. So you haven't had, like, some weird, freaky investor call you and just, like, (laughs) be like, hey, Pip, want to go grab a coffee and a nut butter sandwich and treat you out? None of that. (laughs) I bet no. No freaky investors yet that have emerged. So, yeah, they were relatively, like, quiet. That's good. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, some of them only put £5 in and some put... 
20,000. So there's like this wow. real stretch of like who is, you know, owns yeah. what. But it also includes, it was a bit of a friends and family round for me. So I've sure. got my sisters, my dad, my mum, right. and they're all in that bucket. Right. Um, he he put his 5,000 pounds back in. That's it. He, yeah. went, he may have reinvested that one. And I love that. You've got like a group of advocates who hopefully right. buy every week. Wait, is it too late to invest now? It is. Uh, <laughs> you missed that window. I'll just invest by ingesting. Yeah, yeah just, you can I'll buy. just be a consumer. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And then any idea that you want to sell one day or is that just too premature to think about? I don't even think about it. Obviously, we have raised... Come on. You stuff. do a little bit. <laughs> just a well, little bit. Well, naturally, I mean, we've done sort of three or four funding rounds since the crowdfunding. So sure. brought on more like institutional money. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we have a pool of investors and some of them are institutional. So, yeah, they ask you when they're, when they're investing, what's the exit plan and, and the horizons to that? So, yeah, I naturally do think about it and have to think about it. But... I also think about it in the sense that as long as I'm enjoying it and or adding value to the business, I'd like to think I'd be involved in it, whether it's yeah. whether we've sold or not. But I don't think it's as scary today if you look at recent examples like Ella's selling yeah. to Haynes. Yeah. And they would say that it made them stronger and better. Yes. And then Haynes also left them alone. Ben and Jerry's selling to Unilever, yeah. fundamentally changed Unilever. Yeah, yeah. And then even like Plum Organic selling to Campbell Soup and worked yeah. for Plum a long time ago. And so I do think that obviously depends on not the company, but who the team is and all yeah. that. But there seems to be kind of a less scary precedent that's been set in the market. Yeah, I think you're right. If you can find a business that aligns, right. then you're going to be happy. And actually, I think what Ellis have done very well is that they have kept themselves very separate. So they yes. still exist as a, an entity in their own. Actually, I don't think many people know that they're owned by a different, uh, a, kind of a bigger company above right. them. Right. So yeah, I think it's will be in the future at some point, but I'm not quite sure when. So last question, is there anything that now that five years in and all of your infinite wisdom at 30 years old, what would you have told your 25-year-old self standing at that street market fair or whatever you call them here? Yeah. yeah it's funny because I don't have really that many regrets of... Not a regret, but would done you have done it. something differently? Would you have I think approached only, something you know, a little differently? The only thing I say now, if I was to do it again, is that... I would probably get a co-founder. Now, it's not to say that I don't think it's not possible to, obviously, I'm a sole founder as it is. I just think it probably would be a lot more, it'd be a tiny bit easier, potentially a little bit less lonely. It's less lonely, yeah. yeah. It's very hard when you're on your own yeah. doing something. But in lots of ways, it suited me well, and it actually meant that I've had to learn every aspect of the business, and I have decision-making over it all, which is brilliant. Mm. It just means that in those really hard moments, you're sat there being like, am I making the right decision? But then the name would have been like Pip, Sarah, <laughs> no, or something. Right. I don't know. Yeah. It wouldn't, wouldn't have been I as catchy. Right, well. right, right, right. Yeah. It could be more challenging. It might exactly. be snappy. Yeah, yeah. it would not work. It's yeah. so right. So yeah, that maybe is the only minor regret. Maybe so find for the majority of our listeners who are in the US, but increasingly also in the UK now and beyond, can they buy your products online? Yeah, so we got, can, right? Yeah, this is, we've got a D2C website, which I'm not sure if it ships to the US, sadly. Well, I could ship it. here, and then when I'm here, I could pick it you up. You can stockpile here. Or I could uh, ship it here and then have them ship it to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. But, yeah, watch the space. We'll be working on that, I'm sure. Okay, and your website address is? Yes, uh, www.pippinup.com. Remember, you're too young to say www. I know, I just I thought, catch I people every it. time. I do Way too young, yeah. <laughs> It was great having you on. Absolutely. Thanks again for coming in. 
This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at The Bop Podcast. And learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Mm-hmm.